Evening, Dan. Evening, Omar. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you feeling ahead of tonight? Can we just leave that to the end? I can only concentrate on one hard topic at a time, <laughs> the truth. Um, I, well, I was feeling relatively confident until we had our prep call where you said you felt really confident. And then I asked you, you know, <laughs> the, who are Villarreal the equivalent of um, in the Premier League for me to get some context? And you said... Uh, I said, well, looking at our World Super League ratings, we rate them about Arsenal's level, which you know is pretty, pretty tasty. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past Arsenal beating Liverpool over one game, over two legs, a bit more challenging. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it should be a very, very good game. Yeah, Villarreal probably, I've probably done the classic English, what every English pundit does, which is kind of go, oh, they're not one of the top three teams in Spain. They can't be very good, but they are, they are quite good. Um, the obvious, the other point to make, obviously, is that Liverpool are very, very good, um, and. Uh, what I, I was having a look at the betting markets and they give Liverpool and Man City roughly the same odds of going through. So, you know, if you were to ask the person on the street whose position would you rather be in at the moment, Liverpool Man City, I think you probably call it about even, right? Um, and that feels probably just about right. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, it's going to be, if, look, it's going to be a great game. I'm not, com- could be completely wrong, famous last words. It doesn't feel like it can be as uh, 4-3 like with uh, as, uh, as City was and as open as that game was yesterday, which was just a brilliant game of football. Um, but I am going to take, um, uh, I'm going to take a shot at you for your um, your title for this, which if there was ever a title that um, was going to turn people off our talk, <laughs> it was definitely going to involve a large acronym with the words that follow FFP in my uh in my limited experience. So I think we're going to have to come up with some sexier bylines or get some type of uh, marketing expert involved to, uh, to get things sorted because uh, yeah, FSR, I can't even say it. <laughs> FSCLR. Um, yeah. Is, is what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight, but I think the, the fascinating elements will be, you know, I think dispelling a few myths about what's gone before and what's going to happen in the future. I think generally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But apologies. I, I put down the acronym because I thought, you know, it's kind of, interesting this newfangled newfangled acronym but actually it's just more complicated um but it's uh, one of the things i want to touch on when we chat in this half hour is um just some of the other areas that that kind of encompasses and you can't kindly share the uh the new regulations with me and your followers ahead of this which i wouldn't say are necessarily worth a read but they might be worth a, a flick through uh, should we chat about what's yeah. what's gone before though um so F- ffp i think introduced in 2011 if i remember correctly and, and it was really off the back of sustained consistent losses within European football and FFP essentially limited losses for clubs to I think it's about 30 million a year um, euros with with some exemptions so you can invest in women's football infrastructure youth football for example um, as a means to kind of invest in the the long-term standing long-term revenue generating potential of the club Um, and it was I think it was obviously poorly named which I think a lot of people acknowledge which is part of the reason we've got this um, this new acronym um, but also, um, it, it but, 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 but primarily it did achieve its goal. So I, I've been looking at UEFA's um, reports, and mm. they've got a landscape report which is always very good every year. And in 2012, the operate the aggregate operating losses across European first divisions was 113 million. Uh, was a loss in 2012. Every year after that, the it turned into a profit and a growing profit. So from 2013, 339 million operating profit all the way to 2017, 1.3, 1.4 billion uh, operating profit. So I think it's without question, without kind of wanting to do UEFA's Compton PR for them, without question that um, FFP achieved its original aims, which was um, financial sustainability of clubs. 
Um, but I think post-pandemic, obviously reported losses in that report of about a billion post-pandemic. And, you know, some uh, concerns about the way things are reported, the way that punishments are handed out, the way that, you know, it, it kind of potentially benefits certain types of clubs have, have kind of accelerated, I suppose, the change that, that we've seen and that have been recently announced. I think that's I think that's totally right. Um, you know, I, I I always split out actually um, UEFA FFP implementation and policy objectives with actually sanctions and the controversy around cases and settlement and you know UEFA losing cases, witnesses, whatever the sanctions might be, and otherwise. Because I think you're exactly right. You know, pre 2010 11 when the rules effectively came in and were you know, um, th- there was a sort of um, a, a glide scale to implementation. You know, every year, you know, I was even looking at the Premier League stats and across Europe, clubs were losing fortunes. And I think, you know, what effectively um, attracted a number of investors to the Premier League and across European clubs was that um, promise that um, there was going to be an incentive to run clubs effect- effectively on, uh, you know, a break-even basis, which is obviously really important. Um, and so what we had, a fa- uh, more or less, is uh, I agree that, you know, the term financial fair play was never a really good um, indicator of what the, the regulations were there to do. But the regulations were effectively there to ensure that over a, a three year period, clubs would be more self-sustainable, um, would live within their means and effectively couldn't um, make more than a 30 million euro loss over a three year period, which is obviously a pretty narrow window of um, uh, of loss making over a period where clubs had historically and systemically made um, significant losses. And so what happens 10 years on, um, uh, pre, at least pre-pandemic, we had a situation where, and it was obviously still interlinked with national framework for regulations and cost controls, is that you had the vast majority of the Premier League clubs actually making profits. That was down to some of their regulations too. Um, and uh, really what we are looking into now, obviously with the pandemic happening as a result, and clubs need probably a little bit more leeway, is what UEFA has almost called these three pillars um, of cost control, which is solvency, stability, and then the cost control element. So I'm not sure, Omar, whether you want to touch on any of the areas that you want to touch on, and then I can sort of describe a few other uh, elements more generally. You, you tell me how you best want to run this bit. Yeah, so I think the squad cost control has been reported. Clubs be limited to spending 70% of their revenue on players' wages, transfer fees, and agents' fees, which is a fairly aggressive percentage. I think a lot of clubs are operating close to the 100% mark, it will be scaled down. So I think in the first year, you'll be allowed 90% and scaling down to 70% over a three-year period. Um, and, you know, some clubs are operating on that basis, but a lot aren't. Um, and it's it's not a world away from what um, clubs in League 1 and League 2 have had for a number of years now under their SCMP. Um, the biggest challenge that the EFL have had with those regulations is real-time monitoring, um, you know, obviously accounting periods, you know, clubs report their accounts. Uh, you know, almost a year after the season is completed and by which stage they might be in the Premier League or they might be in another division under a different regula- um, financial regulation. So that's been part of the issue. It'll be interesting to see how UEFA does track um, this. Um, as you said, the second pillar is that financial st- sustainability, which is permissible losses. That's increased to £60 million, but there is uh, some of those costs that I spoke about earlier are now included. Uh, and one of the other pillars as well was this idea of overdue payables, which I know is a big cause of contention amongst clubs, which is the fact that um, you know, obviously clubs pay transfer fees in instalments um, and 
uh, and often, you know, default on those payments if they become insolvent or, or have run into financial difficulties. And that's quite frustrating for a club that's budgeted for 30 million in transfer income and they've only received half of that or 5 million of that or whatever it is. Um, the other thing that um, was really interesting to me was um, there is going to be essentially a matrix of um, punishments based on how far you violate these um, these limits. So um, at, I think, the softer end is points deductions, which will now be kind of relevant in the effective supergroup format, you know, the, the Swiss style format that um, will be from 2024, which I think is quite interesting because I think in a four-team group, that punishment doesn't really work. It actually renders a lot of the, the group a, a dead rubber um, because, you know, if you're, if you're punished, particularly if you're in the kind of middle bottom end of that group, then it's, it's three teams competing for two spots, which isn't super interesting. But if it's in a one big group, then actually, you know, a big club getting punished by one or two points actually does have quite a material impact on um, on the competitiveness of, of that in a good way. So I think that's potentially a good rule. And then it, will, it extends all the way to being expelled from the Champions League, which was in theory the case before, but I think now it will be much more explicit what the, what the laddering is. Um, so I think on the whole it's you know there, there's a move towards i guess um more transparency and, and more clarity and, and, and kind of ease of understanding but there are obviously the ongoing challenges around you know some of the other proposals that put forward around salary caps and what that meant from eu law and, and competitive balance and so on which is still um, out for consideration agreed and you know so i think then in summary what I, I think you've you've spent a lot of really interesting time and detail on is, you know, w- w- what is new? Well, actually, what is what is structurally new is the squad cost rule. And again, what that is effectively doing is limiting spending on wages, transfers and agents fees to 70 percent of club revenue. But the interesting thing that I saw in the, the regs, which I actually hadn't hadn't seen, I was just mentioning to you beforehand, though, mother, I actually hadn't seen that the whole regs had come out until relatively recently. So I'm still going through that detail um, is there's a few transitional areas of all of this. So for next season, still the 22, 23 season, the, the current break even requirements of 30 mil over a three year period continue to apply. So it's actually only from the 23-24 season that the new regulations effectively reply um, in terms of squad um, cost control requirements. But interestingly, for that season, it's going to be 90% um, of um, commercial income. It's then the next season after 24-25 goes to 80%. So it's actually only the 25-26 season is the first season where the squad cost ratio has to be at that 70% level. So there's a pretty uh, uh, trans- long transitional period to, as you'd probably expect, I guess, for all of this to um, uh, to get going. And on your point to do with the break-even criteria, which is interesting, which is going from 30 million over three years years to 60 million over three years my reading of the regs actually appears to suggest that actually it might actually if certain other conditions are fulfilled go up to even 90 million euros over a three-year period which actually obviously gives a lot more leeway so i think those bits are really interesting just aside um you know that the truth is is that uh, these ffp regs hold a lot of um uh, quite uh, i can say emotional significance for me because this, these were really the regs that i uh, cut my teeth on as um, um, a sports lawyer originally back, you know, 11, uh, 12 years ago, and even before when they were starting to be published. And a lot of my original advice was on all of this. And the interesting thing, I think, on this as well is what actually uh, leagues and national associations do on the basis of their own 
cost control frameworks if they have, if they haven't, and whether actually in some ways they will marry these uh, new regulations up to domestic regulations as well. And with that in mind, and we're going to maybe touch on a couple of other things, but, you know, I think, uh, Omar, we, we chatted about um, what does this actually mean for national regulations more generally, for the independent football regulator, for parachute payments and for EFL um, points that we're going to discuss briefly. But I'd be really interested in your views as well, because obviously this isn't this isn't salary cap per se, but it's getting a little bit more towards that salary cap um, idea. Um, and I guess the point on competitive balance and uh, sustainability are sometimes confused. But as you said in the beginning, the financial fair play probably wasn't the best um, descriptor to be able to uh, provide greater sustainability for football clubs. This now, as the regulation effectively is, which is financial st- sustainability regulations, is exactly what it says on the tin. Yeah, f- for sure. Uh, on on the competitive balance point, I was thinking about this, and I don't know if you ever think about this in your line of work, Dan, but we often, in technology, have this kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, like a triangle of, of things. So you can either have things, you can have two of these three things. You can have it far, uh, fast, affordable, and high quality you can have two of them but you can't have the third uh, and i think about this in financial fair play where you can have sustainability competitive balance and probably like free market would be the, the third one or like you know if, you know the freedom of movement of players and all that kind of thing um and what the regulations in football in the last 10 years have narrowed down are free market and um and sustainability but it's probably come at the expense of competitive balance um, if you were to implement salary caps, for example, that you, you kind of cut off the, the free market element. That's what, you know, UEFA really, well, European football really struggles with is because it's, you know, under European Commission rules, it's very difficult to implement something like a salary cap because it's not, it's not an open labour market system. Um, and as such, um, you know, if you were to do that, though, you would be able to probably have competitive balance and sustainability to a degree, you know, because you don't enable clubs to invest up to a certain level and you can put in some kind of checks and balances to ensure that those um they were you know they were able to fund those those that investment in the squad um and then similarly you could have competitive market and um uh, sorry competitive balance and, and free market without sustainability which is kind of what we had i suppose you know pre 2010 um so that that's some, some of the choices i guess that, that are being made some of the trade-offs that are being made and obviously you know owners are influencing a lot of these decisions and owners want you know don't want to be throwing their money down um what they would see as down the drain on their clubs and so Perhaps if if you know some of this stuff was maybe more fan led in a way, which we can get on, get onto, maybe fans would, would kind of prioritise some of the competitive balance elements um, at the expense of sustainability potentially. But but ultimately, you know, it's the clubs and the ownerships that are driving some of these decisions. You can understand at least where it's coming from. I think the other point worth noting, and I haven't actually looked at this in uh, detail in the regs, is last time. Interestingly, all of the fines. Um, uh, from non-compliant clubs were distributed um, um, uh, were distributed across all of the clubs that qualified for UEFA uh, club uh, competitions. So uh, when I looked at some of the sanctioning elements, I think this, the main uh, sanctioning point is a, a punitive fine element, as you mentioned, particularly in relation to uh, breaching the uh, squad cost rules. And I wonder whether um those fine where, where those fines will go the only reason i say that is just maybe think about your point to do with competitive balance and obviously it might not um help um in a in a meaningful way across particular uh clubs but redistribution of fines like in a way as uh, you know luxury tax element um across 
clubs, especially maybe the smaller clubs, makes up more of a disproportionate amount of their revenues might be an interesting way of maybe improving competitive balance at the UEFA level, but actually weakening it at the, the National League level. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, and they obviously, one of the things I was originally on the table was this concept of luxury tax as well, and, and whether money could have been redistributed from that. But I think that the view was taken that certain clubs might be prepared to pay that luxury tax and actually that's not necessarily good for competitive balance so even though it might seem like a positive competitive balance it, it probably isn't um should, should we turn to domestic regulations so dan you mentioned obviously some of this might cascade down to what domestic league's done and it's important to know i think the premier league did adopt financial sustainability rules after uefa did one or two years after uefa did they were probably more a bit less stringent than uefa's ones um, than originally set out but i can imagine a lot of leagues following suit what would an independent regulator, for example, in, in English football be thinking about when they see these regulations? Well, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I, I do think one of the points that um, the independent, an independent regulator would be thinking about is, I think, at its core, the long-term sustainability of the industry, uh, its clubs, and making sure that they're not spending more than they earn more generally. So um, I, would, I would be really interested... Um, to hear what's going to happen over the next period of time around the independent football regulators uh, capacity to investigate to even maybe it might be the case i don't know provide a similar license to the license that's given in the german bundesliga the license that's provided by under the uefa regs as well um they're obviously going to and whether they have the power to fine suspend sanction accordingly it, it seems that they're certainly going to have that um, owners and directors power and there's going to be new types of enhanced tests so again uh, the query will be is at the moment those types of regulations and those um, not prohibitions but regulatory frameworks are found within the Premier League within the EFL regulations. The query is whether, firstly, independent football regulator will have those powers. It seems they're going to have some, and whether then those powers will be removed from the individual leagues um, to monitor um, and investigate and sanction potentially as a result. So. That's the that's the first thing, and you're totally right on. You know, the the Premier League and EFL playing catch up after UEFA had originally um, originally done it, and and one of the things then as a result that I was I was thinking about, depending on obviously when independent regulator football regulator comes in, there's some reports that it might only be uh, entered into statutory force in 2024, apparently, um, if not before. We were I was talk we were talking about. Um, a report that was in uh, the Times today, which was talking about one of the important bits, which captures quite a lot of what we talked about today around financial distribution, sustainability, uh, competitive balance, um, and I, I guess um, financial planning generally, uh, which is around parachute payments and the distributions that the Premier League um, are making and will continue to make to the EFL, apparently to the tune of up to 1.6 billion over the next three years, I believe, if the reporting was right. And one of the discussion points or one of the points that was being raised was whether actually um, a merits-based system uh, uh, was um, a potential viable possibility that the EPL have suggested to the EFL so that effectively the vast majority of parachute payments would be ended to clubs leaving or getting relegated from the Premier League, but in its place would come um, uh, a system whereby clubs would be rewarded for where they finish in the league effectively. And yeah, I was just really interested on your thoughts on all of, on all of that and how that might work like in practice disincentivize or provide newfound um newfound interest yeah i mean it'd be it'd be incredibly interesting to see what that would look like and i've got to kind of do some mental maths in my head here but 
a club getting relegated from the Premier League first year, parachute payments, um, their revenue in the Premier League, let's say a, a weaker club in the Premier League would probably be around 120, 130 million. And with parachute payments in the Championship, they're looking at probably around 70 million. So about a halving, maybe, maybe slightly less than that. Um, and obviously a few other clubs receive parachute payments. Now, if you were to take that amount of money that's on parachute payments and, and spread it evenly amongst uh, championship and say some League 1, League 2 clubs, you'd probably be looking at a club going from 130 to, um, you know, 20, 30 million at, at most probably. And that's a huge drop. And that's what a lot of clubs in the Premier League and even championship say, you know, drives unsustainable behaviour in terms of spending too much uh, money because you're trying to chase that dream of of getting to the 130 million and trying to avoid dropping down to, um, you know, the, the cliff edge that exists below. If you were to smooth it a bit more, which is, I guess, what the proposal was, i.e. if you get relegated from the Premier League, the odds are you'll probably finish in the top eight in the championship and therefore you might, um, you know, you, uh, let's say, I don't know, Norwich get relegated this year, you know, they, they finish... And next year, they would earn a similar amount to a Middlesbrough, um, for example, who finished sixth, let's say, next year. Um, I still think, I mean, it'd be really interesting to see what, if that proposal is made, how that would be spread, because I, I still think that would be quite a drop for a Premier League team. Um, and there was a good piece in the Times today, which was almost the other side of the argument from Matthew Syed on, you know, let's have a think about redistribution, because if you do redistribute um, and, and kind of um, take from, say, the bottom end of the Premier League in order to redistribute, to the rest of the league, then what you might do is, is kill the golden goose in the sense that the Premier League is, is driving most of the value in English football and is already providing a huge amount of distributions. So you, you don't want to undermine that um, too much. So it's a really difficult thing to kind of square off. Um, I, I think the principle of merit-based payments also is just a really interesting one to, to think about when you take a step back. I must admit it's a bit of a gap in my knowledge as to what was the case pre-Premier League, I suspect there was merit-based payments, but perhaps not as aggressive, certainly not as big as, as what um, we have today in, in most European football leagues. But there's there's almost a question to be had as to why have merit-based payments at all? Because I suppose the, the most basic argument to have merit-based payments is that they are a reward, perhaps an incentive for, for you know finishing higher in the league. Um, but the flip side of that argument is to go, well, it's sport. Everyone wants to finish high in the league. There's no, you don't need to be incentivized to finish high in the league. The glory should be enough in of itself. The, the ability to say to your rivals, we finished above you, the ability to kind of take in the glory of, of finishing higher in the league. Uh, and what's, I think, if you take that argument even further and say, well, all money should be distributed equally, there should be no reason to incentivize clubs to finish higher. Clubs are already earning significant amounts from commercial revenue and match day revenue the higher they finish in the league you know if a team does well they will invariably be more commercially attractive to sponsors to hospitality whatever it is and also probably are able to charge more tickets and, and maybe be able to expand their stadiums and so on so you can make the argument that clubs are rewarded and incentivized to do well because they're able to generate commercial and match day revenue and therefore why not distribute um you know broadcast income completely equally now I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think that's, you know, clearly that, that ship has sailed. But I think when you get into that headspace, then you potentially begin to think of what different models look like around distribution. But I think it has to be done at a European level, if that makes sense, because if one country does it, then they're potentially undermining themselves competitively. Agreed. And I just wonder whether there's one thing as well, which is like like we always talk about, nothing is ever in isolation, is it? So, you know, one of the things that the Premier League, I'm sure, have been pretty hot on for the EFL discussions is, well, it's all very fair and well, you saying that we don't want to give 
parachute payments anymore. But the truth is, over the last X amount of years, most of your clubs are making losses and significant losses at that. So in a way, what can we do, as well as obviously providing significant monies to EFL clubs, what can we do or what do we need to prescribe you to do in order to make sure that that cost control framework, if we go back to the right the beginning of what we're talking about over this session, what that cost control framework looks like to get those clubs' financial houses in order because you know, lots still seem relatively um, unsustainable right now. And um, in a way, I don't know where the incentive lies for the Premier League to ensure that clubs either coming up or going down at least um, you know, have that um, uh, parachute um, cushion to a degree. But you know, at the moment, the EFL clubs, a lot of them are still, um, um, are still have difficult financial positions to face. Yeah, and I think that's a fair argument from the Premier League side because if you're just redistributing more money and the prize is still big to get to the Premier League, then you're still going to drive that unsustainable behaviour of um, of spending to, to get there, which which is the kind of core argument of, of the core argument against the cliff edge is that it provides too much of an incentive to, to spend either side of it. So very quickly, Omar, um, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, um, bearing in mind that I'm more confused than ever about... Um, uh, Champions League matches now because there's no away goals and I'm not sure whether it's an advantage to play at home or away these days and maybe you can tell me more about that in due course but um, yeah what do you think um, scores um, for tonight might uh, might be? Yeah well the one the one thing I would say about um, the loss of away goals rule is I think it gives an advantage to teams in the second leg because they have potentially an extra 30 minutes at home um, you know with a home crowd I think tonight I think Liverpool will win I think it'll be uh, I'll put my neck out because by the time this goes out as a podcast it will be able to to laugh uh, I would say I think I'm going to go 2-0 I think it'll be you know a goal either side of half time and Liverpool shut out the game and then uh, take it back to Spain Let's see. Well, as always, thanks so wait, much for joining. What, what about your prediction? Oh, I, I, I definitely don't even put on the spot. <laughs> I'm usually <laughs> terribly wrong. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with. Actually, it may sound terrible. I'm gonna go with the score draw because I. I, I think they're pretty good defensively, um, and I think it might be um, a bit of a framework on what. Um, Lampard did for the first uh, 60, 65 minutes at Anfield um, over the weekend. So I'm I'm a little bit more reticent in truth, but I'm looking forward to be proven completely wrong. Very good. We'll find out. Well, enjoy the game, Dan. You too. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13 which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Carell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.